This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Activate, a show brought to you by Amnesty International. Hi, my Tina Koto, and welcome to another edition of Activate for the month of October. My name's Catherine Butchard, and I am here in the station recording another episode, the monthly show brought to you by the Christchurch branch of Amnesty International Aotearoa, where we cover human rights stories from New Zealand and abroad and report on the good news of human rights victories. We also have interviews, and tonight we have an excellent interview from a woman called Mariana Cifuentes, and she works uh, remotely. Uh, for an org- organisation in Myanmar, and um, she's got some excellent information to pass on to you that I'm sure you'll be very interested in. Kia ora everyone, this is Greg from the Activate team. Uh, it's the month of October 2022, and I'm just going to share some human rights in the news with you. Uh, obviously, Iran has been all over the media, you will have noticed. Um, since our last show in September, um, in Iran, protests have erupted across the country due to the death of 22-year-old uh, Masa Amani's death on September the 16th, um, following her arrest by the morality police for allegedly improperly wearing her headscarf. Now, if you've been following some of the media coverage either on television or online, you will have noticed that... Um, Commentators on Iran have noted that this is obviously um, one of a succession of times during the past um, years since 1979 when the uh, Islamic Revolution occurred in Iran that there have been um, various more, more regional instances of regional protests against the government and the Islamic authorities over there. And But in this case, um, I just wanted to focus some uh, some quick attention human rights watch online in the news section on the uh, 12th of october just highlighted the fact that because the protest situation has led to a number of young school aged um, uh, young women and also obviously school children um, to undertake uh, protests across the country um, this is also you know, there's been dozens of videos posted online, and we've all seen them, showing schoolgirls protesting in their schools and in the streets, chanting and waving, even um, burning their head coverings. But the Human Rights um, News website makes the point that some of the risks that the schoolgirls who are protesting face can be deadly. For example, they talk about a young woman called Nika Shakarami, and she was just 16 when she burned her headscarf at a Tehran protest. And she was last seen alive on September the 20th after being followed by security forces. Um, the Iranian government claims that she fell from a building, which is the same fate of another protester, Serena Ismailzadeh, who was also 16 and who also allegedly fell to her death in Karaj, which is west of the capital, on the September the 24th. 
And according to some media reports, both of the families of these um, young women were pressured not to contradict the official story. Just a couple more facts. As of October 11th, the Iran-based societies to support children claims that 28 children have been killed during the protests, uh, most in Sistan and also Balochistan provinces, and also nine children have been named by rights groups and media outlets as having been killed by security forces. Uh, Human Rights Watch, as of the publishing of the article on the 12th, had not independently documented the cases, but the report raises grave concerns. And UNICEF has called for an end to the violence against children. Just want to pick up on that final point. If you go onto the Amnesty International website, there's actually a petition there at the moment in, on the New Zealand website for you to um, sign to put pressure on our Foreign Minister, Naya Mahuta, to take more active measures to get involved in um, asking the UN to directly investigate some of the uh, happenings around these protests in Iran as well. So I really encourage you to go on the Amnesty website, have a read of that information, sign the petition if you would, but there's more material there regarding the Iran protests. And obviously this is a big news issue right now and will continue to be and we'll just have to see over the next coming months and possibly the next part of the year, what the outcome will be in Iran. So introducing Mariana Sefuentes. She is a governance researcher and development practitioner with 16 years international experience working on social justice programs in Latin America, East Africa, Asia and Melanesia. Mariana has worked in Myanmar since 2015. During this time, her research focused on the role played by civil society in the provision and delivery of social services. Currently, Mariana is an international consultant, and her latest research focuses on how communications and technologies are used to generate discussion and advocate for change, especially among young people. Mariana holds an MPhil from the Institute of Development Studies and a PhD from the International Institute of Social Studies. Hello, Mariana. It's so great to have you here in the studio. As I was explaining before, we feel um, really privileged to have you here in person because often due to COVID, um, we have been interviewing people over Skype and things like that. So welcome to the show and thank you for your time. I thought we'd start um, today by um, asking about your time in Yangon. So you work for an organisation in Myanmar, remotely from New Zealand, but up until the start of last year, you were living and working in Yangon. Um, So I'd like to go back to that time when the military seized power and no doubt this was a very stressful time for you and your family. What I wanted to ask you is did the military takeover come as a complete shock to you or was it something you saw coming and also when and how did you make the decision to flee the country and head here to New Zealand? Hi Catherine, first of all thank you so much for having me here and um yeah, it was it was completely unexpected. My uh, husband used to work for the NLD government when we were in Yangon, and I was working for a number of development organizations for seven years. We were had a very happy life. I mean, it was um, an incredibly challenging uh, time professionally because of all the things that were taking place in Myanmar. But we thought that democracy was there to stay, and. Um, the coup happened just as the second democratic government was about to take place. Um, it, it was on a Monday. And on Friday, my husband received a, a phone call saying, 
things are really bad here. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. Just please be on standby. And we thought, okay, <laughs> not sure what that means, but you know, we um, we were absolutely shocked when we heard the news that you know Aung San Suu Kyi had been put in in jail, and that the elected president uh, was also put in jail as well as many of the NLD leadership. Um, so it was uh, it was an absolute shock. Yeah. Okay. And in that going back to that time, then. You mentioned there was a Monday where your husband received that information. And then how many days or weeks are we talking that then you basically hop on a plane and, and come here? So we had um, a week and a half. And um, uh, he he was a government advisor, so he had access to sensitive information. And uh, it was pretty much the day of the coup that we knew we had to leave. But as you say, it was uh, in the midst of COVID and organizing travels was not easy at all. Um, the same week of the coup, uh, Shan Tournel, which was an economic advisor of Aung San Suu Kyi, was put in jail. And the New Zealand embassy very kindly facilitated our exit of the country. Um, because at that point, it was clear that you know, the the security risk was quite serious. Mm. Um, my husband and children are from New Zealand, so that was kind of a logical step for us to come back here mm. and just try to see what was going to happen after. At that time, then, did you have a feeling it would be f- forever, that you wouldn't be going back? Or in your mind, you were thinking maybe this is a temporary solution and then when peace resumes, we can get back there? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, it's it's interesting to look back and uh, and realize how naive we were. Mm. I was certain that, you know, the, the military were not going to stay in power for over a year. And, uh, and then as time passed by and things became much clearer on how this hybrid democratic arrangement uh, had worked and how much control the military had over all decisions in the country and how much, um, the, you know, all the innovations that they had put in place to ensure that they would, they would remain in power no matter the... Uh, large popular discontent uh, over their actions. So, um, so yeah, initially I thought that we were going to be back in country after a year, but now it's clear that it's very unlikely. So uh, I I remain working remotely mm. uh, in Myanmar. It's a huge range of emotions, I'm sure, to deal with. I'd like to ask you now about Unsung Suu Kyi, who has been detained by the military coup. She faces a jail term of 17 years, but um, it's widely seen that, that her trials were a sham by the military to discredit her. Prior to the coup, uh, she was coming under fire for her country's treatment of the mostly Muslim Rohingya minority. I read a headline late last year from the BBC which seemed to sum things up, and it stated, Aung San Suu Kyi, democracy icon who fell from grace. Former supporters have criticised her for doing nothing to stop the genocide. 
Others have said she was being a pragmatic politician, trying to govern a multi-ethnic country with a complex history. Suu Kyi went on to defend the army's actions at the International Criminal Court at The Hague in 2019, which seemed to uh, most as a real low. Do you have any personal insights? I know it's such a complex question, but um, we're really interested in, in anything you have to say. Yeah, well, Aung San Suu Kyi, as you said, you know, she was um, given the Nobel Peace Prize and she was seen as a human rights defender. Uh, she was leading the democratic efforts in the country for many years. I mean, as you know, she was under house arrest for over 20 years. And when um, she took over the government of the National League for Democracy, the NLD, uh, government in Myanmar, um, everybody expected her to be perfect. And that was that was impossible. I mean, she comes from a military background. I mean, her father was the independence uh, leader, and he is also from the Bamar ethnic community. I mean, she embraces all these Buddhist values. And uh, as a result of it, she also has a lot of prejudices towards, you know, uh, other religions, but uh, particularly against the Muslim community in Myanmar. And that's not unique to her. I mean, many countries who are Buddhist in the region, they also feel that they are withstanding this wave of Islam that is there to conquer them. I mean, these are obviously prejudices and it's terrible. Um, but that played out in her politics in 2016. We have just celebrated five years of the exodus of the Rohingya population from Myanmar to, to Bangladesh. And, you know, the human rights violations that the Rohingya had had to suffer are just absolutely terrible. Um, but but I think you cannot blame it all in Aung Sa, on Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, she she's she's one of the many pieces. You know, these are geopolitics at stake. Rakhine is a um, is a, a geographic positioning that is super important for China to access uh, gas from Myanmar. I mean, it's, uh, they were going to convert it into a deep sea port. Uh, is very close to India as well. I mean. So there are so many things at play here. And sometimes the, the hate speech campaign that was um, propagated against Muslims and the Rohingya in particular, there is so much behind it. And it's also control of the military over the hearts and mind of the Bama population, which are the majority in Myanmar. And uh, it was incredible that despite it all, you know, these democratic values uh, survived, and that uh, psychological coup didn't play out or didn't pan out in the same way that the military wanted. And then they had to actually effectively remove this government from uh, taking power the second uh, time around. Thank you. Yes, some fascinating insights there and a great reminder that Aung San Suu Kyi is really a product of her time, of her past, mm. and it's complicated. Yep, yep. 
I'd like to ask you now about uh, what everyday life is like for the citizens of Myanmar. I know that you've been back to Asia for work for a couple of times. Given the situation in Myanmar, you, you haven't travelled there. What can you say about life for an everyday person now in Myanmar? I think it's really challenging. I mean, there uh, there is a, an economic crisis that is playing at the same time as uh, the political pl- crisis is happening. And um, there is risk of famine. I mean, the, the levels of poverty have reached 40% of the population. We were discussing that it's not only, you know, those living in urban areas, but it's also those living in rural areas that are facing a lot of uh, a lot of problems. I mean, because um, the conflict has meant that they haven't been able to plant for the rice. I mean, Myanmar is, uh, is one of the green baskets of Southeast Asia. Um, the the markets are closed because there is no easy uh, flow of uh, of products across the borders because of the conflict as well. Uh, the economy is um, the exchange rate is keeps changing. The value of the of the chat has uh, has dropped so low that it's impossible to buy anything with it. So it's it's very very challenging. But despite it all, people continue resisting this uh, military takeover, which is incredible. That's the inspiring story, isn't it? Yeah. You work for a justice access to justice program based in Myanmar. What can you tell us about what that work involves? Yeah, it's uh, it has been it has been. Fascinating for me to be able to continue doing this work. I mean, at various points, I have thought, okay, that's the end. We won't be able to operate anymore. But luckily, we have. uh, And uh, many people ask me, well, why would you be working uh, in an access to justice program when there is so much injustice? And um, I mean, the reality is that the courts are still open, even though, you know, the laws have been changed and anybody can go to prison without any questions being asked, but you still need a lawyer to represent you. And that's what we do. We are actually making sure that uh, legal aid is available and that the lawyers that are brave enough to continue providing these services have all the resources in hand so they can do their job to the best of their abilities. Excellent. I'm sure that you come across many inspiring people doing great things in Myanmar, and it is nice for us to share some of those good news stories to balance out um, how we might feel about the terrible things that are going on. Can you share some of those stories with us? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, as I mentioned, you know, this uh, there is there is one lawyer in particular. She's a young lawyer. She became. Uh, a mother actually the day of the coup and decided to stop breastfeeding and go back and do her work, this, you know, cut her maternity leave short, really, and uh, go back and go into prisons and uh, try to provide support to all of those young people who were detained during uh, the peaceful protests. And she has been such an inspiration to me. Um, I also work with a, with a, a group 
providing support to LGBTQI people who are targeted, you know, by the police, mm-hmm. and they are put in prison just because they exist, and uh, they don't give up. And it's that energy of young people who are so focused on just using all the resources they have to um, just do good things, you know? And it's just when there is so much evil around you, having these uh, young people just pushing forward and believing that things will get better soon uh, is, is quite a special, it's quite inspiring. Absolutely. Lastly, I just wanted to touch on something also very inspiring that we've had a chat about previously is an interesting conference that you recently attended and it was run by the IFA, which is an International Cultural's, Cultural Relations Program. And the title of it was Culture in Security, International Cultural Relations as an Enabler of Peace Through Engagement. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a big topic. Um, and you've talked about it in, in a really um, upbeat way. So I'd love to hear from you um, what some takeaway messages were. Yeah, I mean, you know, culture and security is basically the role of culture when there is conflict. And uh, I, 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 was, I was just fascinated by seeing all these people who think that art and culture actually can be a way to foster peace. Um, so, you know, there were examples from Colombia, how Colombia has had, went through a very long um, uh, civil war almost. And at the last stages of this conflict, there were, you know, uh, artists coming together and organizing these collective projects to remind people that it was possible to live in peace. And that had an incredible impact. It was the same uh, to an extent in Afghanistan and it's the same that is being doing, done in, uh, in Myanmar where, you know, there are all these human rights violations that are taking place. And uh, for example, you know, um, women being attacked or villages being burnt and how these testimonies are, are collected and they are reworked with the help of artists to give an idea, to give a voice to all these uh, survivors of violence, but also to, to celebrate their resilience and, uh, and to show to other victims, because this is an ongoing conflict, that uh, they won't be just a story, but, you know, there is a record of, uh, of what they are going through and, uh, and that people appreciate what, you know, the fact that they are still there with us. So, um, yeah, it was, it, was an, it was an incredible conference. So I, um, the key message was that art is important for societies. And, you know. Can't hear that message enough, Mariana. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in uh, today. I'm sure we could have talked for a lot longer. We might have you on the show again sometime. But thank you very much. Good evening, Christchurch. My name is Stefan, and this is the good news section for Activate uh, here in Ōtotahi uh, for October 2023. 
Now I tell a lie, it's October 2022. Anyway, uh, some news, some good news uh, from our Amnesty colleagues in Auckland or Amnesty International uh, worldwide that has been passed down to us uh, from last month uh, is that uh, two Thai activists, uh, Natanet Baipoa, uh, Duang Musit and Nitipon Bung Sanisang Kom have been released on bail. They had been held in custody for almost three months and were on hunger strike for 64 days in protest of their detention. So, uh, that'd be well, amnesty groups around the country and both around the world had taken uh, sort of urgent actions for them on their behalf on the 21st of June and 7th of July. Um, Baipur and Bung, uh, they're short names because some of those Thai names can be very long, but that's the names they've shared with us. Uh, they wanted to share their gratitude for the action uh, that we've taken. And here's a, a message from Baipur. He says, I want to say thank you to all the activists, Amnesty members, and everyone who helped in every activity, all the letters, solidarities. When we read or just get to know about the letter, it really pushed us to continue our lives inside the prison. It helped us to continue breathing. I would like to pass the word to everyone, but our friends are still inside. We must continue. It is because the right to bail is for everyone and should be treated equally. And a brief message from Bung, uh, the other uh, Thai uh, activist who was released. Every activities and solidarity continue our breath. When we were inside, we were very afraid. Afraid that people will forget us. People might not see what we are doing. They might not see our fight. However, today we see and can feel that no one leaves us. Thank you so much for still standing beside us because there should be no one who should be prosecuted for using the rights to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly. So thank you very much, all you amnesty activists out there who contributed in some way, whether it be letters, your thoughts of solidarity, your financial support of Amnesty International. If you want to read more, about uh, those two Thai um, activists who have been released. You can go to the uh, amnesty.org.nz and uh, many other cases that we still continue to campaign for. Thank you. And just like that, we have come to the end of another Activate show. Thank you very much for listening. I'm sure you enjoyed our interview with Mariana Sefuentes. Fascinating. Uh, and it may be that we get her on again. She has so much to share with us about uh, such a fascinating area of the world. Please use your freedom. Can you go to the webpage, amnesty.org.nz? Use your freedom. Uh, you can demand justice for Iran. You could sign a petition and end the protest bloodshed. You could also join us in our campaign called Raise the Age Campaign. That is where you can tell Justice Minister Allen that 10-year-olds are too young for life sentences. That campaign is all about raising the age of criminal responsibility. So please use your freedom. Be inspired by what Mariana was telling us about the wonderful um, and strong young people in Myanmar and maybe take a little bit of ounce of inspiration from them. Go to our webpage and see if you can use your freedom. Thanks for listening. Hi and please join us next month.